Hello, and welcome to the Great War Aircast, a mini-series on the Air War from 1914 to 1916. This is part three of three, Aces High. By the time the Fokker Scourge came to an end, the war in the air had undergone significant changes. In just two years, the airplane had evolved from a vehicle of recreation to a war machine of increasing usefulness. Although air power was still struggling to find its place among the established services, the proliferation of trench warfare meant air power would be assuming a larger role. From following and observing enemy movements, airmen were now required to fly deep into the opposition's territory, mapping out the terrain, the location of enemy strongpoints, and the like. They also had the added responsibility of being spotters for artillery. By 1916, air squadrons on the Western Front were roughly divided into two sections, the workers and the fighters. Fighter aircraft take all the glory, and they are what most people conjure up when they think of the 1914-18 air war. The Fokker triplane and Sopwith Camel are the most popular, flown by the famous aces like Billy Bishop and Manfred von Richthofen. But for the entirety of the war, Fighter aircraft encompassed only a fraction of a nation's air strength. By the armistice, less than 5% of aviators could be considered fighter pilots. Far and away, it was the working sections, the photographers, the observers, and the scouts, who were the true backbone of the air war. Working in close proximity with the ground forces, working pilots had perhaps the most difficult job. Observation aircraft were the favorite prey of enemy fighters. Encumbered by the weight of two aviators, a wireless transmitter, and perhaps a camera strapped to the fuselage, making them easy targets for ground defenses. Although more aircraft were being equipped with wireless transmitters by 1916, the process of directing ground fire remained tedious and time-consuming. Pilots would often not hear their transmitters over the roar of the engine and the wind of an open cockpit. Furthermore, while most aircraft could send outgoing messages, they could not receive them. Wireless remained very much a one-way street, so pilots and artillery crews adopted a more archaic routine. To direct ground fire, the observer would have the pilot take the aircraft to a spot where he could see the battery. Once in place, the order to open fire was given, usually by a colored flare or by rocking the aircraft wings. When he saw the muzzle flash, the observer would direct the pilot to take him to where he saw the shots fall. The observer would then calculate flight time, trajectory, and watch the target for impact. Once complete, he would send the information via wireless, and the process would repeat itself. It goes without saying that for a shoot to be deemed successful, the aircraft would have to remain above the enemy's network for upwards of an hour flying in the same sector as to not lose sight of his mark. This made them easy targets for enemy fighters and ground fire. By 1915, flak, timed artillery shells set to burst at specific altitudes, became the bane of observation pilots. More aircraft were brought down by ground fire than enemy fighters. Oftentimes, an observation craft would crash into no man's land, or behind enemy lines in full view of the infantry. This led to a special, rather paradoxical relationship between the two surfaces. While men in the trenches grew accustomed to death and danger, 
Watching a friendly aircraft spiraling to the ground was a troubling spectacle to behold. The noble sacrifice of the anonymous airmen helped grow the bond between the ground and air. At the height of the Battle of Verdun, one French soldier had written, quote, We infantrymen here in our holes watch you all the time. We see everything you do. You are our gods, our protectors. When a day passes and we don't see you, we are like children whose mama hasn't given them any dessert. End quote. The burgeoning relationship between ground and air forces is one of the most fascinating aspects of the Great War. Driven by the public's fascination with aviation, and the media's hunger for morale-boosting stories. It is no accident that some of the most well-known figures from this era were aviators. Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, is perhaps the most famous individual produced by the war on either side. His Red Fokker triplane is synonymous not just with the air war, but with the First World War as a whole. This poses an interesting question. Why? Why in a conflict which involved millions did airmen emerge a cut above the rest? Why were their lives celebrated and mourned when hundreds of infantry and sailors were being killed daily? Part of the answer lies in the public appetite for aviation stories. This had begun in Germany during the Fokker Scourge. Kaiser Wilhelm was quick to heap rewards and single out pilots for bravery. The personal letters decorations, and autographed pictures of himself he addressed to young pilots were given the widest press coverage. This gave rise to the famous aces, pilots credited with five or more kills. Oswald Bulk and Max Immelman were the first of this kind. School children would keep track of their tallies, and each recorded victory was an important boost for public morale. Immelman would be credited with 15 victories. Bulk would eventually earn 40, having outlived Immelmann by four months. As the Germans celebrated men like Bulk and Immelmann, the Allies looked on with disdain. French and British presses had no intention of reporting on airmen's exploits, fearing it would lead to resentment between the branches of service. However, it was not long before the Allied public clamored for a response. The idea that German pilots were becoming famous by killing their own was unacceptable. Before the governments took action, private citizens offered cash rewards to pilots who brought down enemy airplanes. French women donated furs. In Russia, Tsarina Alexandra led a drive to provide pilots with warm clothing. For their part, the pilots were never comfortable with such arrangements largely because it made their relationship with the infantry rather uneasy. Senior military staffs were indignant at the idea of offering men in uniform special rewards, for doing what was, after all, their duty. Airmen and infantry were equally insulted. Pilots felt it was an assault on their ethic, while the infantry could not understand why their exploits were barely mentioned. A pilot who brought down three enemy airplanes was a national hero while a soldier who shot three enemies with his rifle would receive little recognition at all. But as the Bulks and Immelmans grew in fame, the Allies had to respond. While celebrating another man's death left a sour taste in one's mouth, it was important for morale that the Bulks and Immelmans were stopped, and when that finally happened, the Allies had famous aces of their own. Bulk 
was killed in a collision in October 1916. Immelman was shot down in June 1916. British pilot G.R. McCubbin and his observer, Corporal J.H. Waller, are credited with the victory. The death of these men gave the Allies a much-needed boost. After the events of the Fokker Scourge, the playing field had been leveled. Although the Allies finally got their hands on Fokker's synchronizer, it took several months before the Scourge could be effectively checked. The development of the Newport 11 and DH-2 provided Allied air forces with a suitable response to the Eindecker. The first Allied aircraft equipped with the synchronizer would not arrive until later in the year. In the meantime, French and British factories were churning out aircraft at a rate the Central Powers could not hope to match. New models were faster, more maneuverable, and could fly at higher altitudes. This eliminated the Eindecker's advantage, which was to dive on unsuspecting prey before pulling out of danger. Just prior to the Battle of Verdun, German air staff were noticing a shift in Allied tactics. French and British airmen were becoming more daring, but more importantly, they were specializing. In 1915, Joffre had ordered the bulk of French airplanes be used exclusively for artillery observation. Under this new organization, French artillery fire became deadlier and more accurate. Meanwhile, the Royal Flying Corps had become more aggressive. By the end of 1915, command of the RFC had passed to 43-year-old Hugh Trenchard. Trenchard's philosophy was simple. Be aggressive and cede no ground. Like Haig, Trenchard believed the only way to grow an effective combat force was to keep pushing. Under Trenchard, several flights of aircraft would carry out daily sweeps well behind the German lines, either to photograph, bomb, or just be a demoralizing presence to German infantry. These sweeps were deeply unpopular. Not only did it create higher-than-necessary losses during the Fokker scourge, but something as trivial as engine trouble or a misplaced screw could lead an airman having to glide down and crash land deep in German territory, their reward being capture and internment for the duration of the war. Nonetheless, Trenchard's leadership put the RFC on the map. Prior to the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle, Haig had summoned Trenchard to discuss the RFC's role for the assault. Trenchard laid out his plans for bombing and observation, but added the unreliable weather might force him to postpone the flight at the last minute. Haig responded by saying that if the RFC was grounded, the attack would be cancelled. The Haig-Trenchard meeting is a substantial moment in military aeronautics. Haig's endorsement gave the RFC some much-needed credibility, and the two men developed a close working relationship. All the BEF's major battles relied heavily on aerial observation. Although the results were mixed and far from perfect, Haig had great faith in the future of aviation. To counter the growing threat posed by Allied air power, the Germans developed a new tactic known as the aerial barrage. As they prepared for their massive attack on Verdun, maintaining secrecy was of the highest order. To prevent prying eyes, the Germans maintained a near-round-the-clock barrage screen. The barrage screen prevented French aircraft from crossing German lines, thus shielding their major buildup. 
the Germans employed slower, two-seater aircraft for this job. These were tantalizing targets for French airmen. Unfortunately, the French learned a bloody lesson. Upon approaching the screen, they would be ambushed by prowling Eindeckers. French authorities were quick to take note and immediately began reorganizing their air defense. Philippe Pétain combed the escadrilles for the best pilots, including several American pilots from the infamous Lafayette Escadrille. These new formations were given the task of punching a hole through the German screen. Formation flights of 6-10 aircraft became a common sight over the Verdun battlefield. Slowly but surely, the French regained the skies. For the Anglo-French push on the Somme, air power played a similar role. Although Haig's endorsement of the RFC meant it was destined for greater things, his expectations of what aircraft could achieve were downright unrealistic. This can be attributed to the army authorities failing to recognize the problems which airmen faced. One RFC liaison officer recalled trying to explain to a general that a long-distance reconnaissance mission would be impossible, because the pilot would have to fly against a 50 km an hour headwind on the return flight. The British general is reported to have said, quote, but the wind makes no difference to you. End quote. In the weeks leading up to July 1st, Anglo-French pilots flew multiple sorties over the German lines. By this point, the RFC strength had grown to 421 aircraft, with an additional 200 in reserve. Army commanders insisted that observation aircraft should not only reveal the size and position of German forces, but also direct the artillery barrage so it could blast the wire entanglements and clear a path for the infantry. As we well know, poor weather throughout the week-long bombardment grounded the RFC. When planes were able to make it up, foggy conditions meant their photographs revealed only a sliver of the enemy positions. Even if the flyers had been blessed with clear and cloudless days, it was unlikely the opening day of the offensive would have gone better. The bulk of German positions on the Somme were underground, safe from the prying eyes of curious aviators. By the tail end of 1916, the Allies had regained control of the skies. Anglo-French aircraft outnumbered German aircraft 3-1. to one. Yet, British air losses were high. In September alone, the Germans destroyed 127 British and French machines, for the loss of only 27. Between July and November, total British losses numbered 782 aircraft, 308 pilots, and 191 observers, the bulk of which were lost to engine failure or ground fire. Compared to infantry losses, these numbers are negligible, yet they do reflect how the nature of the air war had changed. Owing to Trenchard's insistence of maintaining supremacy, German pilots had a field day. By operating over their own territory, German pilots faced no danger from ground fire, and with the prevailing winds in their favor, they could never be trapped or caught out, as Allied pilots often were on the wrong side of the lines. On September the 16th, the first bulk delivery of the new Albatross and Helmerstadt pursuit planes allowed men like Bulk to ratchet up the air war. One of Bulk's most promising pupils was 24-year-old Manfred von Richthofen, 
who scored his first victory on September the 16th, downing BE pilot Robert Money over Cambrai. Two months later, Richthofen would add another tally, when he downed famed British ace Lenoy Hawker. Hawker's death was a major blow to British morale, and when word circulated that Richthofen had Hawker's machine gun dug out of the ground and placed above his doorway, British pilots were appalled. In truth, Richthofen had done it as a sign of respect. Richthofen equated Hawker as the English Immelman, and the young pilot no doubt felt a surge of pride for downing such a formidable opponent. Just to show how unpredictable the air war could be, Richthofen estimated he'd fired 900 rounds in his pursuit of Hawker, but only one bullet, straight through Hawker's heart, brought the pilot to the ground, just 50 meters short of the British line. From 1914 to 1918, the air war was centralized on the Western Front. The close proximity of opposing armies meant the best aircraft and pilots were always in demand. On the other fronts, air power was much more scarce. Balloons, airships, and other dirigibles took a leading role. But that is not to say fixed-wing aircraft did not have an important role. Owing to the size and scale of the Eastern Front, Russian, Habsburg, and German forces opted to forego the aircraft in favor of the dirigibles. German pilots, who flew aircraft on both fronts, said it was simply harder in the east. The scarcity of landmarks, such as cities and rail lines, made orientating oneself exceptionally difficult. A French pilot sent over was gobsmacked to discover his airfield was 80 kilometers from the front line. Each mission thus entailed a flight of 200 kilometers in the frigid cold. Put simply, neither Russia nor Austria-Hungary were able to sustain their air forces throughout the war. For example, through March 1916, the Russian Air Service had received only 100 machine guns, and as of April 1917, had only seven fighter aircraft of Russian make that had synchronizing mechanisms. Most of the aircraft flown by Russian and Habsburg pilots were of German, French, or British design. So too were many of the pilots themselves. In December 1916, the French government received an urgent request from Russian and Romanian governments for trained pilots. One of the pilots sent over to the east was an American, 40-year-old Bert Hall from the Lafayette Escadrille. Out of 1,600 men from the French military mission, only Bert and five French pilots were trained aviators. Throughout his time in the East, Hall wrote of the deplorable conditions. Morale among Russian and Romanian pilots was abysmal. The arrival of foreign advisors did little to smooth things over. In August 1916, Romania's air force consisted of just 44 airplanes, and less than 100 pilots. They soon received 322 obsolete French aircraft, deemed unfit to fly against the Germans. It was a similar situation among the Russians. Hall noted that Russian aviators were so demoralized they believed the Germans had taken pity on them. When Hall opened fire on a German aircraft, he was interrogated by his fellow airmen. One reportedly told him, quote, We have been here a long time, and the Germans never bothered us. Now they will get mad and come and drop bombs on us, 
and may kill some of us. End quote. Many of Hall's stories are rightly suspect. For example, he claims to have met the Grand Duke, Tsar Nicholas, and Leon Trotsky on three separate occasions during his stay. While his letters do conform with the chaotic situation in the East at the end of 1916, his description of Russian pilots lacking patriotism and courage are a bit unfair. Russian pilots were just as eager to prove their patriotism as their English and French counterparts, even to the point of deliberately sacrificing their own lives. Well-known aviator Peter Nesterov made headlines when he deliberately rammed an Austrian biplane in a desperate attempt to bring it down. Both pilots and the Austrian observer were killed, but Nesterov's sacrifice became legendary. His ramming technique became known as Tehran, and was later adapted by Soviet pilots and tank crews in the Second World War. Other Russian airmen flew with distinction. Alexei Brusilov made extensive use of the dependable Skirovsky Ilya Mormets, large four-engine bombers throughout his Galician campaign. While effective and tough, only 83 were built, and Russian factories were unable to replace the lost aircraft in time. By and large, the air war on the Eastern Front was not nearly as bloody as the war in the West. Aerial observation, not air-to-air combat, took priority, since there were so few accurate maps. The lack of aerial combat is shown in the raw data. Of the 7,500 aerial victories that German aviators claimed during the war, only 358 occurred on the Eastern Front. By the end of 1916, military aeronautics had shown its importance on the battlefield. But as 1917 beckoned, the rules of the game were about to change again. And we'll talk more about the next developments in the air war when we return to the main narrative. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. You've been listening to part 3 of 3 of the Great War Aircast, a mini-series on the Air War from 1914 to 1916. I hope you enjoyed it, and look forward to seeing you again shortly. <laughs>